So, I play in a band. Um, you probably wouldn't like our music, but <laughs> no one does, you know. We don't get many people to our gigs. I'm, I'm at one with that. I'm peaceful. I can accept it. Um, but when we go to a gig, normally there's uh, three or four bands playing. We each play a 30, 40 minute set. Um, that way, if someone hates you, at least they might like someone else. It's, it's good planning that way. Um, but sometimes you might not know the bands you're on with and you're feeling quite confident, hey, things are good. And then the band that get up before you are absolutely brilliant and you're left like, oh great, I've got to follow that. And Lou just got whoops and she's got claps and it prompts you everything. Lou, I'm suddenly feeling the pressure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, very good. Um, the extremely cheesily named website, Joyful Days, Dot com. I don't know if anyone frequents that website, joyfuldays.com. <laughs> you should. It's listed 10 things that studies on happiness list as the surest ways to happiness. See, she's right on it already. It's going straight to favourites. They've put these 10 things all together into a so-called rough order of importance, with the top three slightly set apart from the others. Before I list these 10 things, can anyone think of anything that might be in this list of things that are the surest ways to happiness? Anyone? Cookies. Cookies. I like your thinking. I'm not saying if it is or not. Friends. Friends. I like it. I'm not saying if it is or not. Just keep a, keep a mental check if it's there. Money. Money. Oh, I like think. Right, we're going to go from there. Keep it in your head. See if it comes up. Keep a little mental score. Here we go anyway, the official joyfuldays.com list, and they should know they do have joyful in their website address. Number 10 is watching TV. No. Yes. Watching TV can increase our enjoyment and happiness in the moment. Not a long-term joy, but in that moment, it can bring enjoyment and happiness. Number nine is good health. Uh, interestingly, it's suggested that actually it's the absence of health that makes us unhappy while we tend to take the presence of good health somewhat for granted. Will we agree with that? Yeah, you don't know what you've got to, it's got another kind of thing, you know. Um, number eight is personal freedom. Everyone needs freedom to vary in degrees. Some people would say they can't be happy unless they can totally determine their own fate. Number seven on this list is religion. According to research, religion provides a personal creed, a direction in life and a sense of purpose. All of which contribute to a person's well-being. So there you go. Number six is giving to others. Many people testify that uh, what lifted them from depression was actually helping others, volunteering, uh, fundraising, tutoring poor children, and so on. They're all forms of giving that the site lists to set us on the path of happiness. Number five is forgiveness. The research states that those who can't forgive become angry and depressed over time and suffer poorer health due to physical reactions to negative emotions. Number four is gratitude. Grateful people are happy people. Okay, that's a little tagline to have. The site says that keeping a gratitude journal or saying prayers aloud every night is a surefire way to increase your happiness. Again, I'm going to point out Lou here because it just made me think of it. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever seen uh, when Lou's, sometimes when she goes to days, like meeting days, special events, or when she's praying, she'll keep a page where she sort of doodles these amazing pictorial things of what God has been speaking, what she's got to be happy about. And I can see how that would really help 
And I know that she shares it sometimes with people, and I know it helps people, so that's definitely one of those things. My art and writing is terrible, so it might be a school mess, so I'd have to live, live thinking of yours. Um, that was number four. Oh. So into the top three, um, I feel like John Peel right now in the old 80s episode, Top of the Pops, that I've been watching. So in at three is positive thinking. Don't compare yourself to others, don't envy others. Consider yourself lucky rather than comparing yourself to beautiful millionaires. You know, count your blessings and so on. Number two is meaningful work. Not just any work, meaningful work. Apparently we're happiest when engaged in activities that make us forget ourselves and lose track of time. Getting into what is called the flow. The flow experience. Finally, number one, if you haven't guessed it at this point, it's not cookies. It is family and relationships. It's quite nice to spend time with, uh, around people you love. Intimacy with others actually fulfills two basic human needs. The need for social connections with others and the need for personal growth. So that's what they have as number one. I was personally a little disappointed that scoring 50 hard-fought match-winning runs while playing cricket or basking in the whoops and cheers from the crowd after your band to totally nail a new song at a gig didn't make it into the top ten. They would have made it into mine, probably. But I guess they're quite niche moments. But anyway, what if I was to tell you that actually I think they got the list wrong? Well, number one, I'm not saying number one should be in it, but I think there's another number one at the top of that. I don't mean that it's cricket. Um, instead, this morning, I want to say to you that it is the truth of the gospel that brings us the most joy. So if you can, if you've got a Bible, if you're next to someone, anything like that, uh, Philippians 3, verse 1 to 16, as it seems that the Apostle Paul had exactly that opinion. So Philippians 3, 1 to 16. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind 
and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, believe it or not, I like rules. I know, I can come across like some kind of rampant anarchist at times, questioning the man, raging against the machine, getting all angry. But I must admit, sometimes I'll be totally and utterly lost without rules. Now, I love a board game. Can we get a whip for board games? Thank you very much. You nerds. Um, I feel that I should have a hello, my name is name badge right now. But hello, my name is Luke, and I love board games. I don't get to play many right now, but I still love them. Indeed, according to my collection data on BoardGameGeek.com, a fine site, add that to your lists, along with the joyful days. BoardGameGeek.com, we currently own, take a deep breath, 239 games. A few are Lenners. I love them still. Some are scattered around various different houses, particularly at my parents, bless them. Um, but that's still quite a lot, and I'm starting to think it's sort of almost embarrassingly so, let's face it. Anyway, these games range from five-minute fun distractions to six-hour monsters. I have games for eight players. I have numerous games for one player. Yes. They're great. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I called you guys nerds, and I'll take it back. Um, one player. I have games about dystopian futures, fashion design, the Football World Cup, delivering love letters to a princess, fast food franchises, Napoleon, pandas, German politics, rocket science, and being cast away on a desert island. However, they all have one thing in common. They all have rules. Some rules can be fitted onto the back of a couple of playing cards. Others are 40-page booklets. But they, I know. But they all have rules. The games need rules. Without them, you can't fully enjoy them. You don't know how to play properly. Don't know what's right and wrong. How the game ends and how you succeed or fail in what the game aim is. So I'm thinking about cricket again. I feel bad for you because you get it from Sam as well. Cricket goes one step further. Cricket has laws. Laws. I got in trouble once at cricket for saying about the rules. And they go, no, it's laws. Cricket has laws. Laws on how to score runs, how to get players out, how to bowl, how to bat, how to field, and so on. Laws in order to play the game properly. Laws and rules help give us a feeling of security. They help us to know what we can and can't do. What is permittable, what's not. What to do if we mess up and what to do when we don't know what to do. I think that sometimes us church folk, and I'm speaking of myself as much as anyone here, living in the grace of Christ's sacrifice and our salvation, can look back on Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, as we try and work our way through, they're quite heavy, and say, phew, can you imagine? I'm so glad I don't have to worry about not planting two different types of seed in my vineyards. I'd hate to not be able to eat raisins. I have vinegar on my chips. At least, and I don't know if you guys have thought the same, at least I don't have to worry about my Nazarite vow period, let alone having to shave my head at the end of it. Although I'm going to go on 
uh, for the rest of this morning about the amazing joy we find in the grace of the gospel, I don't want us to poo-poo the law of the Old Testament. These laws set the Israelites apart from those around them. In a time before Jesus had died for our sins, the Lord provided them with a vast rule book on what they could and couldn't do and how they could be spiritually cleansed if they messed up or did wrong. Now, of course, just like your uncle stashing 100-pound Monopoly notes under the board at Christmas, the Israelites were great at finding loopholes or outright finding ways to get around the laws. There were so many of them. But they were put in place for that security so that they knew what was right and wrong in the eyes of the Lord. They knew where they stood. Although, praise the Lord, we are free indeed through God's grace and Christ's sacrifice. We have salvation through the actions and heart of Christ. Despite that, Jesus did not just cast the law aside. He did not tear up the rule book, so to speak, and throw the game pieces to us, just let, let us get on with it freely, making it up as we go along. Christ Jesus, in Matthew 5.17, says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Going on in Matthew 5.21-22, he says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anger, not just murder, anger. Verse 38 to 42 says, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, 48 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteousness, on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are huge. These are tougher than those Old Testament laws. I'm sure, it's pretty easy not to murder someone. I've never done it that I can know of. I don't think so. No, I haven't. It's generally fine, kind of loving your neighbour. They can be a bit annoying at times, or their tree might overgrow your garden or something. But you can generally love them. But to love your enemy? Be told that even being angry with a brother or sister will be subjected to judgement. Jesus didn't hate law. Jesus didn't destroy the law. Jesus was not all about making our lives easier and letting us slack off. Oh, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, Christian life's easy. I can do whatever I want now. Jesus was the fulfilment of the law. And his teachings tell us that instead of a technical observance of the letter of the law, our obedience instead must come from the heart, our attitudes and our intentions. You know, this would make things extremely difficult for us to remain holy and pure in front of God. Thankfully, God made it possible to, uh, Jesus, sorry, Jesus made it possible to stand in front of God with our sins taken from us through faith in him. No wonder Paul considered his past garbage and lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The gospel is joy. Philippians leads us to this joy of the gospel that is found in knowing Jesus. 
the topic that this week was given when the, service, when the series was all worked out. The topic for this week is True Christianity. And spurred on somewhat by Alex Moiter's book, The Message of Philippians, there are a few steps, I guess, in our understanding of the beauty of the gospel and our realisation of that. These steps lead to that joyfulness and freedom from legalism through Christ. So the first step I want to look at today, as Paul talks about in the first half of the passage, is gain and loss. Paul writes very openly about his past. Indeed, he speaks very clearly about his past with regards to Old Testament law. He's never had any delusions of grandeur with regards to his own glory. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, he describes himself as the worst when he mentions sinners. Paul's own experience when named Saul on the road to Damascus is one that reveals God's power in the blinding, God's forgiveness in the healing, and God's blessing and plans for Saul in his salvation and how Ananias listened to God and let in this man who's famous for persecuting Christians. In Philippians, Paul lays out why, theoretically, he has more reasons to put confidence in the flesh, as it were, than most other people. He was circumcised on the eighth day, as the Old Testament law prescribes. Great, big tick there. Not as an adult. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, and by the law, a Pharisee. These are top-notch qualifications. It's like being, this one's a bit niche, I apologise. It's like being a McMahon in the world of pro wrestling. It's like being a Beckham if those children attempt to get into professional sport. Or it's like being Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter when the music agents come knocking. It's an immediate shortcut. It's a big thing. It's a name. He lays out his personality, his experience and training in the passage in this sort of like a mini CV. He speaks of his zeal that he persecuted the church and has faultless righteousness based on the law. If you were looking, to, if you were looking for someone to replace Saul, you'd want someone with this combination of background, qualifications and experience. He's the big cheese, a real deal. He had it made. Power, responsibility, money, authority. And as far as he was concerned, he was doing the right thing by helping to crush a rebellion against the Jewish law. But he was saved. His life was changed. In an instant, he had lost that power, responsibility, money and authority, and he was suddenly on the other side. Not through bad luck or misfortune, but through the powerful intervention of the Almighty God. And Paul realised that he had gained everything. He realised that all those things he had before, the breeding, the power, the experience, he realised they were nothing compared to a relationship with the Lord and a certain future with Christ. He truly had gained everything, and everything he had lost in comparison amounted to nothing. And he had a lot of things. Indeed, he writes, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I had lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Wow. Paul knows that he was freed from a legalism where he was just ticking boxes into the all-surpassing joy of the gospel and of relationship with Christ. 
Did he suddenly start murdering people from coming out of the law? Or stealing oxen? Or hunting down those who had done him wrong in the past? Like a budget late night action film? No. Losing legalism did not mean a loss of self-control and a sudden switch to doing all the bad and sinful things that he could. Instead, his righteousness through faith in Christ came directly from his heart and affected his actions and words rather than from what the law told him he should and shouldn't do. Speaking of which, let's move on to my next point, which is becoming like Christ. Verse 10 and 11 say, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This one could get very scholarly. I'd like to... um, take my lead from Mike, whose who's historical knowledge is brilliant, let's face it. I try my best. Biblical scholars generally agree that Paul wrote Philippians in about 62 AD. Okay, put that number in your head, 62 AD. That's about 10 years after his first visit to Philippi. Paul's conversion is dated somewhere between 31 to 36 AD which, um, if you can work that maths out in your head, this means that Paul has been travelling, teaching, writing, fleeing, sitting in prison cells in the name of Christ for 25 to 30 years by this point. Now, reading this passage out of context to someone who didn't know of Paul's life story, beyond his conversion, I'm pretty certain they'd assume that this was written pretty shortly after his conversion. You see, this passage, written all that time after, has zeal, the passion and the excitement that you would see in a new convert. Someone tasting God's grace for the first time. Not like when life has battered you down for a while, when rotor after rotor has filled your Sunday for decades, when the tea urns always seem to run out before you can get refreshments table after the sermon. Not that it does, I always get a cuppa, it's lovely, thank you. (laughs) But you get my point, I hope. It's easy to become complacent in what we have. In the amazing truth that does not change and does not weaken over time. It's like we can get blasé about quite what we have. The gospel does not change. We have nothing to prove to the almighty creator of the world. He has saved us from eternal damnation and from certain death and has adopted us as sons and daughters. We've become brothers and sisters to each other through his death and resurrection on the cross. This letter, written 30 years into Paul's ministry, is still full of amazement, of realisation that everything he had, he had means nothing. And that everything he gained all those years ago means everything. In verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this, I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on. Being saved is not the finishing line. Our salvation is, of course, utterly central to our relationship with Christ in who we were and who we are since then but it is not the end it's not the time to slip into our spiritual cardigans our spiritual slippers lean back into our spiritual comfy chair with a spiritual tea or brandy or both and watch some spiritual antiques programs we're called to push on to be more like Christ most of Philippians 2 is about being more like Christ Paul has not gotten comfortable. He was still striving to be more like Christ, taking hold of God's promises 
and of his own incredible experiences, things he'd seen and the miracles. Which brings me to my final point this morning, which is pressing on. You may have noticed that these points kind of overlapped and carried on from each other, but I like that. It makes sense. Verse 13 and 14 say, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and striving forwards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that Alex Moiter, the guy who wrote the book, he writes about four satisfieds. And these are the four satisfieds he writes about. And I'm going to touch on them in this section. Satisfied to be found in him. Satisfied to be blessed by him. Satisfied to be made like him. And satisfied to satisfy him. I think sometimes we can think of the word satisfied and play it down somewhat. In the same way that society is downplayed. Awesome! Also, literally, but that's literally another matter. Suddenly, Ed Sheeran is awesome! He's great at what he does. I don't like the guy, but he's great at what he does! Is he awesome? That film you saw the other night with Ryan Reynolds was awesome! That in-swing in York, I bowled to the left-handed batsman at cricket the other week was awesome! It was, it was awesome, right now. <laughs> it was close, it wasn't awesome. But that's all ridiculous. That's all ridiculous. Awesome is breathtaking, awe-inspiring, astounding, extraordinary. In the same way, satisfied. He's not just sitting there, sipping a cup of tea, nodding your head going. Mm. Mm. I like to do that quite a lot. Mm. Satisfied means content contentment. Think for a moment about true contentment. True contentment. That true contentment is not just mm, nice tea. Even on my happiest days I get the odd one from time to time. I'm never really truly contented with my life. Either my neck's hurting a bit after cricket or I let my tea get a bit cold or my feet seem to be a bit smelly and I change my shoes. Or the Brandy Corner roundabout was a bit rubbish again in the morning. It always is. But being satisfied is a lack of dissatisfaction. <laughs> it's a lack of dissatisfaction. Being satisfied to be found in Christ means that it's all you need to be happy. To be blessed by him, made like him. To make it your goal to satisfy him above anything else. That's actually really challenging. By forgetting what is behind him, by straining forwards towards what is ahead, to press on towards the prize for which Christ has called us, Paul is striving towards total satisfaction in who he is and where he stands in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to be found in Christ, that those who look at him see him as a man of Christ, just by looking at him. Paul wants to be blessed by him and to be right with God, being righteous. He wants to stand under divine scrutiny and be told, Paul is righteous. Wow. Paul wants to be made like him, becoming more like him and not resting until he's more and more like Christ. 
Finally, he's ready to go all the way to complete Christ's satisfaction in him, to push on towards that goal, living righteously and vigorously in Jesus. Could the band come up, please? So I even wrote it there so I didn't forget it. For someone who loves the sound of their own voice, I'm talking about me here, and gets carried away with going off on tangents, doing crazy hand motions and telling stories, I'm aware that my conclusions are rarely the strongest part of what I have to say. A wise man once told me, and I'm not looking at that wise man, that when I preach, it can be a bit like an aeroplane taking off, flying for a while, and then instead of landing smoothly, the sermon just jumps out with a parachute. The wise man has a point. Today's sermon has certainly been a journey. We've looked at earthly joy, which quite frankly pales into insignificance compared to the joy we can find in the gospel. We looked at the law and how important it is not to scoff at it. We can only live in grace if we understand what living in grace has cost. So many laws and rules that the Israelites had to follow. Ways to get forgiveness, to be made spiritually clean, what they could and couldn't eat. They followed the letter of the law, if not the spirit of it, to claw their way to righteousness. Yet, through Christ and the truth of the gospel, we can receive that righteousness, freely given to us. This does not mean that we can just do whatever we want. After all, Christ didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled it. If anything, he raised the bar. But we stand with him before God. We do not need to follow the law through actions, but through our hearts and our attitudes. And everything comes out from there. We looked at Paul and his understanding of true Christianity and of the joy of the gospel. How all these qualifications and experiences that he could boast of were worth nothing compared to what he gained through salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul strove to become more like Christ. Even after 30 years of being a Christian, Paul hadn't let the initial excitement fade. He'd not hung up his boots, as it were, and settled into a comfortable life, watching all the new converts excitedly telling their friends about Jesus, while he sat there smiling and knowing smile to himself, ah, remembering the good old days when he was like that. He wanted to keep pressing into Christ. He wanted contentment and satisfaction. And he knew that true contentment and true satisfaction is found in a God who is truly awesome. Paul's letter oozes joyfulness. He pushed aside his old life, his old legalism, and he embraced the gospel and the righteousness through faith in Christ. Everything that Paul wrote in this passage is important to our lives today. If I was to set us a challenge to go away with before I, before I walk back, I might set us this rather lengthy challenge. In whatever way you want, through flicking through the Old Testament books, searching on Google, reading elsewhere, take a moment to look at some of the laws that were given to the Israelites. According to the Torah, there were 613. I want you to think of how much of an amazing person you must be if you carefully and religiously try to keep all those laws perfectly. I then want you to read this passage again, the Philippians passage. I want you to consider that Saul, as a proud Hebrew, a Pharisee, would have known these laws, been proud to keep them. 
Think of his position, his power, how he would have been seen by his peers. Then, consider that after coming into a relationship with Christ, he considered all of who he was, what he had done, total loss, compared to the gain, purely from the truth of the gospel. In his understanding of that, he was still full of joy and excitement and realisation 30 years after his conversion. He had not left it to the next generations. He wasn't wishing for the old days. Instead, all that, the knowledge of all of that that he now walked in, he was still pushing on with the same joy he'd had for 30 years. Okay, thank you.